Good morning. If you've been with us, you know we've been uh, in the middle of a series. We've been working through uh, what it is when we talk about the church. We're actually doing a series just called The Church, and we've been talking about that in a few different aspects, and we're really, I guess this is the uh, fourth week, and then we'll finish it up next week. But what we've been saying each week as we've looked at it is what is the church and what are we to do? And then we've gotten into the last couple of weeks, how do we do it? And what we've said is what the church is, is it's not a building. It's, it's not the physical structure. The church is made up of the body of believers. It's made up of people. It's made up of those who've put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then God gives us the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells within us. And that makes us part of the universal church, that we're all part of the church. When you put your faith in Christ, you become part of the church. And the church, universal, is all believers of all time that have put their faith in Christ. So it's people. And uh, what we talked about, though, is it's, there's the church, universal, but then there's also the local body. And this is our local body. We meet together as a local body. And this is a church in, in a smaller sense. But we're part of the universal church and we've talked about the first week, we looked at 1 Peter 2, and we talked about what we are to do as a church. And what we are to do is we are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of the darkness. Or another way to say it is the way Jesus said the Great Commission, go and make disciples, go tell them everything I've done and I've said and teach them all those things. And that's our purpose as a church, that we're to go forth. And there's a way... To, um, as we've been looking at it, there's a few ways you can look at that ministry of pro- proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us. And part of that ministry is ministry, um, in a way to say it, is, is ministry towards God, directed at God. And that's what we've talked about the last two weeks, and that's worship. That when we proclaim the excellencies pointing towards God, that is worship. We're turning to God and we're saying back to him, we're worshiping him for who he is and what he's done. And that's what we've looked at the last couple of weeks. We talked about what true worship is, that it involves your head and your heart, that it's not one or the other, that it's both. And then last week we talked about this local assembly, what happens when we meet together, um, what our worship service in this local assembly would look like. Well, today we're going to talk about a different part of the ministry of the church, and we're talking about the ministry of the church to one another as the body of believers. We minister to one another, and we're going to talk about that. And then next week we'll finish up the series with what our ministry to our world looks like. And really you can, you can break it down into those three categories pretty much, and that covers pretty much all of what we're to be doing as the church, that we're to worship God, we're to encourage one another, and then we're to go tell. And that's, that's essentially what we're doing. So today we're looking at the ministry... Uh, to the body of believers, to each other. And we're going to be looking at that this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to use Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 to look at that ministry to believers in between the body and what that entails and what, and what that means. And essentially what we're going to see is that it has to do with nurturing and equipping. And we'll get back to those, what those mean. But let's, let's turn to, if, you, if you've got a Bible, if you want to follow along with me, if you'll turn to Ephesians 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. And since we're stepping into Ephesians this week on this series of the church, let me just give you a quick background. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus from prison, and he's writing to encourage them, exhort the church, to help them along, to to promote unity within the church. And that's kind of what we're looking at this morning. Paul writing to the church, and he says a lot of things about the way we're to minister to one another within the local body, within the church. So let's read Ephesians 1 or four verses one through sixteen, and then we'll we'll jump into this this part of the ministry of the church. But Paul says this: I therefore, a prisoner 
for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray and then we're going to look at this passage this morning. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it can teach and correct and exhort. We pray this morning that your spirit would come and you'd do just that, that you would show us exactly what you would have for us in your word, that we would let it Correct us where we need correcting. We would let us encourage us where we need encouraging. Most of all, I pray that we would grow closer to you, that we'd see what you've done for us more clearly. We would see more clearly who you are and that we would leave here changed. We thank you for your word and we thank you for preserving it for us and giving it to us that we can know you more. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start this morning and we consider our ministry to one another, we need to consider what unifies us because really a lot of what Paul is saying is he's telling us to nurture this unity in this passage and we've got to start there with what the unity is and then we're going to ask three questions after we get that main heading here. But the main heading I want us to see is in verses 1 through 6 and before we ask the three questions of us, I want you just to see clearly what Paul's telling us and our unity and who we are as a body, and what because that really informs what our ministry to one another looks like. This is kind of the banner statement over everything we're looking at today. Because what he tells us is he says in verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called, with all humility and with gentleness and with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And what we start to get when we look at those first five or six verses is that we have one hope and one call as a body of Christ. We have one hope and one call. And we start to see that in those verses that our one hope and our one call, that all comes together in Jesus. Right? We said that the church is the body of believers that have put their faith in Christ. And when we do that, we have a very unique unity 
as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, far greater than any other unity we could ever have. And it comes to our one hope and our one call. And what Paul talks about, the one calling that we have, that when we come into contact as individuals with the risen Savior, with Jesus Christ, you come into contact with the ultimate reality and the ultimate truth, you're changed. And you're completely changed to where your call is now changed and it changes the, the uh, projection of your life. It completely changes all of it when you come into faith, when you come into contact with Jesus. And that's all of us. We now have a call, every single one of us, once you, you have put your faith into Christ. And that's what we've been talking about each week. That call, We're to proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called us out of the darkness. That's our call. We're now to go and tell people what's happened, that we've met the risen Savior. Another way to say it is um, Westminster Catechism says the very first thing, that we are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's another way to say it. Our, now our call through what Christ has done for us is we're to glorify Him. The seminary where I went to school, Columbia Biblical Seminary, the, the heading of the, of the school is to know Him and make Him known. That's just another way of saying it. To know Jesus Christ, to grow in your relationship with Him and then go tell other people. That is our call as a body. And when Paul says we have this call and we have this unity of one hope, that's what he's talking about. It's, it's our call in Jesus and how he's, he's entered our life. But then he also says we have one hope. And, it's, and they're really connected, the same thing. Our call is to tell others what's happened to us, but our one hope is in Jesus Christ. It's in the gospel. Um, when we talk about hope, we say our one hope, we, we, I've said this before, but it, it's worth repeating. A lot of times when we say hope in our society, we think of some wishy-washy like, I hope this works out kind of thing. That's pretty much what it means in English. That's what the word has come to mean in, in our English language today. But the idea of biblical hope is not that. It is a confident assurance in what is to come. And the reason that it is a confident assurance in what is to come is because it's rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in what Jesus Christ has already done. Because He's already done it, we have a confident assurance of what He's going to do in the future. You see how that works? It's not hope like, oh, maybe this will work out, maybe not. It's a confident assurance in what He's going to do. And I say all the time when we talk about our hope, I say it's in the gospel. I say that quite a lot. I say gospel, we say as a church, we're gospel-centered. We're part of the gospel coalition. We say the word gospel a lot. But I want to make sure we're clear on what that is. I don't want to skim over that or use it to the point that it loses its meaning, because that's so important that we grasp what that means when we say gospel. The word gospel originally came from the Roman Empire. I don't know if you knew that, but the Roman Empire used to use the word gospel to proclaim that Caesar was coming. It was all about the Roman Empire, you know, what they were doing. And when they'd go and they would conquer things, they would send out evangelists, that's what they were called. They would go forth and they would proclaim the good news, the gospel of what Caesar was doing. And they'd make a big deal about it. And in Roman culture, you know, they made Caesar. They literally said that he is, he is king and he is the emperor and he is God. He is the ultimate, ultimate. And so this is the good news that you're hearing about what Caesar has done. He's conquered this land. Or, or they'd go into places, new provinces that they just conquered, and they would say, you've been taken over by Rome, and now you have Caesar, and here's the good news. You're, you're now ruled by Caesar. And what Paul did in the early church is he took that Roman word and he recast it. Because the reality is Caesar's not the ultimate reality, and he's not the ultimate good news, but Jesus Christ is, and that's how Paul used it. 
And it was, but the, the, the thing, the connection I want you to see is just as the Roman Empire would go and say, here's the good news of what Rome has done, what Caesar has done, Paul uses it in the same way. Here's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. It's already happened. He's already done it for you. And that's what we talk about when the gospel. The gospel is not the good news of uh, the Ten Commandments. Now try to follow the Ten Commandments the best you can. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came and died for you and did what you could not do on your behalf to restore you to God. You see the difference? It's good news that's already happened that you're now being told this has happened for you. So when we talk about our one hope, our hope is completely and totally in the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that unites us in a way, it gives us a unity that's far greater than anything else. And it gives us a central calling because the reality is the gospel is true. If Jesus Christ is God's only son coming to us, God in the flesh doing what we cannot do, then that changes everything. It changes your call. It changes where you place your hope. When we talk about hope biblically, what your confident assurance is in, it changes it to Jesus and it changes all of it. And that's the unity we have because what happens is it creates the, the most profound, deepest unity that can ever be because it's the most profound, deepest truth there's ever been. So when we unite under the greatest news there is in the world, we're united in a way that we couldn't be in anything else. And that's kind of the blanket statement. That's the big idea picture when we talk about our ministry together within the church. So we have to start there. But since we've got that set You see that in verses 1 through 6. Now that that's set, I want us to ask how we minister to each other. And there's three questions we're going to ask. How do we nurture one another? Why do we do so? And what is the outcome? So how do we nurture one another? Why do we do so? And what is the outcome? So let's start with how we nurture one another. Before I even jump in here, just as review last week, part of how we nurture one another, we talked about this last week, is this meeting together regularly. We talked about that last week. Hebrews 10 tells us to not, not to neglect meeting together, that we need to meet together and we need each other. So that's part of last week. I'm pulling that in. But this week as we go to it, how do we uh, nurture one another? I want you to look at uh, verses 11 and 12 with me. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. When we come together as a body, what we're doing is we're not coming together just to hear a sermon just 30 minutes and that's it and we're done. And What you're coming for while we meet together is to equip, to be equipped to do the ministry, to go forth. So we nurture one another by saying and helping each other and speaking truth and we come together. And you could say, well, Sometimes we get off on what church is, as we're talking about the church in general, and we say, well, we come to be equipped. You come on Sunday morning to be equipped, and that's part of it. That, that's, that is a part of it. But when we talk about really nurturing what we're to be doing with one another, it can't be just Sunday morning for a 30-minute sermon. That's not it. The Bible doesn't know anything of that. There's no following Jesus Christ as a disciple of him where you go for 30 minutes one week and that's it. That's not, that's not the way Jesus operated with his disciples. That's not the way the early church... There's just nothing in Scripture to show that. And the reality is it takes a lot more than just a sermon on Sunday. It takes living together. That's how we begin to nurture 
this uh, our one hope and our one calling is we come alongside of each other and we're so involved in one another's life. And that's what happens when we come together. But then what you see in verses 11 and 12 is it's talking about uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And those are the, the things that we usually uh, point to leadership in the church. And we can quickly get off and take that to be, well, they're to do the ministry, but that's not really what this is saying. It's saying your leadership exists to help equip you to do ministry, all of us. It's not just, oh, you, you do the ministry. We've hired you. You're our pastor. Now do the ministry for us, and we'll just come once a week. That's, that's not what it is. It's not it at all. We're supposed to be involved with one another, helping each other. As I was reading this week, I read uh, uh, N.T. Wright's um, I'll say his commentary on Ephesians and he got to these verses and he was saying that uh, sometimes when we make a big deal out of different offices in the church and we start to talk about what they are and what they're to do and we get off on it. And he says we end up saying uh, it starts to sound as the main point of there being a church in the first place was that certain people would be special within it. He says the opposite is the case. The main point of certain people having special roles is so that every single Christian and the church as a whole may be equipped for the work of service. Make no mistake, verse 12 indicates clearly that the point of God calling people to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers is so that every Christian can serve in the way they are called to do for building up the whole body. You see what he's saying there in that quote. Leadership exists in the church to equip the body for the ministry. It doesn't exist to do the ministry for our church. It's there to equip and help. And the way that happens and the way we nurture that is by coming together and living together. And that's what you see in verse 16. Because what he tells us in verse 16 is he says, "But the end of, start with the end of 15. For we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ." For whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with each part, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And I want you to see what he's saying there. The whole body causes growth of the body. You understand that? You see that? That we together as a body of Christ, we come and we're equipped and leadership is supposed to be there to hold up God's word and say, here's what it says and help keep us in line with what scripture says. But then we together build each other up together. My boys are getting into um, puzzles a lot these days. That's kind of the age they are. They like puzzles. And I was thinking about this in terms of a puzzle in a lot of ways. When we come together as a church body and you you think about a puzzle, you know, a hundred piece puzzle and you dump it out and there's all these pieces and they're all just kind of a mess and laying around. And it's not so you start to do the work of putting them together. And a lot of times you look for the corner pieces and you try to lay out the edges and you get it a little together and then they start to fit together. And as they fit together, it becomes easier. And then you see where things go and you get colors that go together and all that. In a lot of ways, that's what happens with the body. When we come together and we start to serve and live together and different gifts come out and all these things, we start to fit together better. And then as we fit together, then you see how other people can fit in and how we can help each other and how we can paint a bigger picture together. And it starts to come. And that's what he's talking about here. Look at verse 7, what it says in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
And the reality is that each one of us has special gifts that God's given you, and they, they come together with one another to better point to who Christ is. We talked about that the very first week. First Peter says we're living stones being built up into a spiritual house together. That the church and the ministry and the body of Christ is all of us coming together and looking at God's word and exhorting and helping one another and nurturing one another so that we see Christ more fully. And here's the really cool thing when you start to think about it. As we grow together, we're exhorting one another and we're growing in Christ and we're growing individually, but then we're growing together at the same time because you have gifts and you you know Jesus in a way maybe a little bit differently than I do. And as we come together and we start to share that, we start to see him more fully. And we grow because of that together. We're both growing closer to Christ. But when we grow closer to Christ, then we grow closer to one another. Which then, in turn, helps us grow closer to Christ. Which helps us grow closer to one another. And you see how that begins to happen. And it goes, and that's the way God designed it. That we're all supposed to come together and minister and love one another and nurture one another and be equipped so that we go out together to do the ministry, not just one person or a few people, or or it's about this person that's got this gift. We all have gifts, and we all have different things, and they all go so well together, and we need one another. The reality is we really need one another because we have blind spots in our own life. All of us do. I was thinking of uh, Proverbs 27, 17 that says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That you need people speaking into your life. There's things where you think, oh, I've got it all together and I'm whatever. And then you say, your friend comes beside you and they say, you know, you haven't been spending as much time as you need to with your wife. And you say, well, you're right. Well, maybe you're right. Sometimes you get blinded to things that you think you're doing it so well and I'm doing it great. And then your friend can come and say, you know what? You're, you're, you're neglecting your quiet time because you're so busy with work. And you need people to speak in to your life in that way so that we can grow together and that's how we nurture one another. So that's really the first part of how do we nurture this. We come together and we help one another. The second part, though, I want us to see is why do we do this? Why do we want to nurture one another and speak into one another's lives? We'll look at verse 13 because it tells us, or we'll go back to 12, we're equipped to equip the saints for the ministry talked about that we're equipping the saints for the ministry building up the body of christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ he says what we're doing is we exhort one another and help one another so that we grow into mature manhood but then look at what he says what is he talking about mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of christ what he's saying is As we do this and nurture one another, we grow into Christ's likeness together. We grow closer to who Jesus is and we begin to see in that way. So individually, we're maturing spiritually, but collectively, we're maturing spiritually. And both as a body of Christ is becoming more like Christ as a body and individuals. They go hand in hand and they work together. And what happens is we start to become more mature believers and we start to look more like Christ. Well, what does that look like? Well, you can look at Jesus' life and see a clear picture of what a mature believer looks like just by looking at Jesus. But you can also look in this passage because he gives us a couple of the things real clearly in verse 2. He says at the end of verse 1, if you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you are called, and then he says, with all humility 
in gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, maturity, Christ-likeness growing in Him is going to be marked by these things. And the first there says you will be humble. There will be humility. And the reality is when you come into contact with Jesus Christ and what He's done for you, that you are saved completely and totally by His work on your behalf, there's no place for arrogance there. There's no place for pride there. If you see, a belief, if you see someone who's claiming to be a Christian, but they're extremely arrogant and extremely prideful in their faith, I'll show you somebody that doesn't understand the gospel very well. Because the gospel, it humbles us greatly. Because what we see in the gospel is that Jesus did it for us and there's no place for pride or arrogance. We're we're all saved the same way and we're all saved by God graciously allowing us to see His Son and what He's done for us. And it's all Him. I like to say, and I've said this before, but it gets it well. God loved you because He loved you. And that's it. That's the bottom line. He didn't love you because you're a good person or He didn't love you because you were doing things for you. He loved you because He loved you. And that's completely humbling to who we are because it's not us. It's Him that did us for us. So as we grow in Christ's likeness, we'll be humble. You can see that in Christ's example. A great example of that is in Philippians 2 when Paul writes, Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by become, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was the most humble. He gave up more in humility than any person could ever do. So when you grow in Christ's likeness, you're growing in humility because you see clearly your own sin and your own salvation and how you came to that, and it had nothing to do with you. It was God's doing at every step. And that leads us to the second thing he says. He says you'll have gentleness and patience. As you understand your salvation and who you are in Christ, it'll lead you to be gentle and patient with other people because you know your own sin and you know what God saved you from. I heard the other day a good definition of gentleness. The guy said gentleness is, uh, I'm trying to think exactly how he said it, I'm going to mess it up, not asserting your rights. And you think about that. In gentleness, you may be right. You may have every right to tell somebody how wrong they are, but you step back and you, and you don't just jump all over them. That's being gentle. And that's really what verse 15 says when it tells us speak, that rather be speaking the truth in love. When we speak the truth in love, we do so with gentleness. You may have the right answer. You may see where somebody is not in line with Scripture, but you do so in a loving way. You don't jump all, all over them. That's being gentle. And when we grow in Christ's likeness, we do that. We begin to speak gently and we become patient with other people. And we have humility in the way we deal with one another. And that leads to the rest of this. We end up bearing one another in love and then that promotes a unity within the body when we live and and act that way with one another. So as we nurture one another, why do we do it? We grow in in spiritual maturity. We grow in Christ-likeness. 
But there's another thing here in verse 14 that it says, look at verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What happens is when we grow in maturity, we grow in Christ likeness. When we nurture that within one another and then we start to grow in those things, what happens is our call, our one hope and our one call becomes clearer and clearer. Becomes a laser focus on that one hope. Because what happens, that's what he says here, he he compares it to a child. He says you won't be a child anymore that gets so easily taken off to things that aren't important. I have three young children right now. I can tell you, especially the youngest, who's 10 months when he sees any little thing that comes by, his little hit, you know, it's, he can't focus. He focuses on one thing and then something else comes and it's, it's all over the place. And it's, and it's a good analogy here of children that were quickly taken off to other things. The sad reality, though, is our world is full of grown children that are easily taken by things that don't matter. It's the way our society functions right now. Everything is sound bites. Everything is tiny little blips because you can't keep anybody's attention for longer than 30 seconds. Everything is put down into our advertising, all of it, and all of it's designed to pull you in different directions. Every bit of it. But what it says is when we start to grow in Christ-likeness and in maturity, we begin to have a laser focus for the things that really matter. And I want you to think about that because when you start to see Christ for who He is, He gets greater and greater and everything else starts to fade. And it becomes so much clearer and that becomes our laser focus and you don't get pulled off on other things because you see them for what they are. You realize that they're a waste of your time. That they're pulling you from your true call and your one hope. So when we grow in that, we become clearer and clearer and that's why we need one another to help us in that. When we start to get off, that's where you step in and speak truth and love. Well, wait a second. Do you really want to spend all your time on this over here? That doesn't help. How does that help any of us of what we're after? And that doesn't mean that every single thing that I'm not trying to make a big thing about whatever it is, your hobbies or whatever, but you're constantly reevaluating. How is this helping my one hope, my one true calling? Because we can get off on that so quickly. And when we talk about growing in maturity is to uh, more Christ-likeness, I want you to think about Christ's laser focus on what his call was and what he came to do. I heard uh, one of my favorite preachers, a guy named Matt Chandler, he's in Dallas. I was listening to an old thing that he had done from a conference uh, a few days ago, and he was talking about Matthew chapter 16. And Matthew 16 is Jesus asked the disciples, who do the uh, people say that I am? Who are they saying? And they, they say, oh, well, some say Elijah and prophets and all this stuff. And, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, um, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says, you're right. And God revealed that to you, not man. But then here was the thing Matt Chandler was talking about that I found. I, I had never quite seen it quite like this the way he said it. But the funny part is, so, so Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ. And then the very next thing, it says Jesus began to teach them about how he was to die. He starts to tell them about the cross. I'm going to be delivered up and I'm going to die and in three days I'm going to raise from the dead. That's the very next line after Peter makes his confession. 
And then the very next line after that. So Peter just said, you're the Christ. You are God. I believe you are God standing here. And then Jesus says, yes, I am. And I'm going to go die because this is my focus. But then Peter, the very next thing it says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Do you get, this is what I just had, and I always read those separately. Peter just said, you're God. You're God in human form. And then Jesus tells him something. He says, oh, wait a second. He takes him aside. He grabs Jesus by the shirt and says, come over here and let me explain to you how this is not, this is not it. Right? And you know the rest of that story if you've read that. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus' words to Peter Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. And then what he says is, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And as I was thinking about that focus, our one call and our one hope, we do that all the time. We come and sit here and say, Lord Jesus, you are God. You are Lord. You are over all. And then we walk out of here and we go right back to whatever. Just like Peter was doing. Yeah, your word says this, and I believe you, and I love you, but you know what, God? Let me pull you aside and tell you how, it's real, how the real world is. We do the exact same thing. We always give Peter such a hard time, because he was really idiotic a lot of times. I mean, really, he said a lot of things that you're just like, but we do the same thing. We do it all the time. And we step, and then we say, no, 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 and we get off on that. And that's why we need one another to nurture one another, to be coming back to our call and our one hope. Because when we do, and this is the last part, what is the results? What's the outcome? And it's right there in verse 15. It says that when we become and we grow into this Christ-likeness and we're not pulled aside by all these things, he says, then we begin to speak the truth in love and we grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We begin to speak the truth in love. And what that means is we go out and we begin to fulfill the Great Commission. We begin to fulfill what we're to be doing as a church. We go and share. We speak the truth in love. And as I kept thinking about this passage as he gets to that at the end, the reality is by speaking truth in love to one another, we equip each other to go speak truth and love to our world. You see that? It's both. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, speaking truth and love to our world and what that looks like. But the reality is this part is equipping us to do that, and they go together. You see how that is? So I want to ask this morning as we're ending, I want you to be thinking about this as we end here, who in your life can speak the truth and love to you? Are there people in this church that you're willing to let look at your life and say, I need you to speak truth to me when... When you see it, the reality is we all need that. I mean, it's so clear in Scripture that that's the way we're supposed to operate and how we work and how the body of Christ grows together when we begin to do that to one another. And I say that, and I've talked about it before, and I want to let you know that where we're going, we are going to probably in the next two to three months launch a bunch of small groups in this church. You need that. We need that together to be able to speak into one another's lives so that we can fulfill our calling. You see that? When we talk about small groups, it's not like, oh, we'll have these neat little groups so we can hang out and be together. That's part of it, and that's a great thing that you get to spend time together. 
But the reason we have small groups is so we can speak truth and love and help equip one another to go forth and do the work that we're supposed to be doing as a church. And that is so right here in Ephesians 4, that we need to be doing that together. So as we close this morning, as we end with this, what we're to be doing, I want you to be thinking about that. I want you to be praying about who is it in your life that can do that. How can we do that better together so that we can go forth and spread God's word? So we can fulfill what we're to be doing as a church, which is going to make disciples of all nations of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your design for the church that you tell us that we need one another to see you more clearly. We need one another to come alongside. I pray that uh, we would take that so seriously as a body that we would be so taken with our one hope in you and what you've done for us and our calling as a body of believers that we would want others to be intimately involved in our life so that we hold one another accountable, that we spur one another on, that we go forth together to proclaim what you've done for us, that we look for ways to do that to be better disciples, to be better equipped, to better love each other and love our world. We pray that your spirit would move and help us to do that in a way that's in accord with your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us and how you instruct us and pray that we would be uh, quick to listen to it and let it guide us in, in our lives. And we thank you for all you've done for us and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.